0: Good morning this morning we'll be reading from Matthew chapter sixteen verse twenty one through twenty eight So if you'll rise with me to read God's Word from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and then on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began and began to rebuke him saying. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it.
1: Sixteen twenty-one, as Owen just read for us, uh, and so um, I'm going to uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're gonna we're gonna jump in. But first, let's let's pray and ask for help before we go in. Lord, we thank you for your word that you've given to us, and God, we thank you that you've brought us here sovereignly to this place and in this moment, um, and all those things are not done by accident, and so. Um, you have divinely inspired or brought about this entire moment for us. And so we pray for your spirit to come now and move so that we can benefit from it, Lord. I pray for myself, Lord, that your spirit would come and empower me to speak clearly the gospel and um, that everything I say would be helpful and profitable for building up the church, Lord. And I pray for me and all of us, that we would be receptive to what you want to say, since um, in reality, I'm not speaking at all, but the Spirit is speaking, and that you would, um, as we hear from the Spirit, move all of our hearts to really listen to what he has to say, and after we hear, Lord, move and act and do what the Spirit wants. And so we are absolutely dependent upon you, and we just declare that and know that, with 100% certainty that we need you to come now. So we pray that you would. I pray that you would use your word to illuminate um, our hearts and give us a deep love for the gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Matthew 16, and just to give us a a little bit of a brief uh, understanding of what's going on, just in case you've missed last week, because this week really builds on last week. Um, And really, you could even say since kind of 14, chapter 14 to where we are, the big picture understanding or the big idea of what we've been doing is identity revealed. And Jesus has been revealing himself on who he is in different ways, healer and those kinds of things, um, provider. But now where we are in this particular set of verses, Jesus is revealing himself as the suffering servant, very much as the Isaiah 53 suffering servant. And he's going to explain to them, um, in not veiled terms, but explicitly, Um, that he must go to the cross and die. He's revealing to them in explicit terms what is um, the gospel. And so what I want to do is to give us a little bit of understanding based on uh, really 13 through 20, and that'll help us understand what's going on in this particular text we're looking at in 21 through 28. So uh, last week, whenever we were going really from 1 through 20, Jesus had some conversations with some Pharisees and had seen again that they have coming against him, trying to test him. And then he tells his disciples to stay away from the leaven of the, of the Pharisees and Sadducees or the, the evil teaching that corrupts men. And then after that, he takes them off. You can see in verse 13 of chapter 16, and it says, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. So he had just had the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees in those first set of 12 verses um, kind of come against him. And he realized they're coming against me. And we even know that the scribes had come against him a chapter or so ago. And so he's wanting to get away from all that influence of, of Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes that are always coming against him. And he wants to take his disciples with him. So in verse 13, he takes him out to a, a Gentile area of Caesarea Philippi because it's time now. And I talked about this last week. In verse 21, there's a, a huge kind of literary shift that happens in, in verse 21 where Jesus, a, a literary hinge is another way to say it. From that time, Jesus began to shift. His disciples. So um, Matthew is really shifting it there in verse 21 where there's a, a central focus on Jerusalem, the cross, and death for Christ. And so the healings and that part of the ministry is really kind of coming to its close. And now Jesus is saying, I'm going to die now. It's time for me to come and fulfill completely my Father's will and go to the cross. And so since he knows that's going to be happening, verse 21, and verse 13, he takes his disciples over to Caesarea Philippi, away from the Pharisees and Sadducees, because he knows this next part of the journey, this last part of the journey, is going to be very difficult difficult and he wants to know, are you going to be with me? Are you going to be with me? So he asks, who do people say that I am? And they say John the Baptist, etc. And then he looks right at all 12 of them and he goes, but who do y'all say that I am? And Peter, who usually, you know, kind of speaks out, he gets it right in verse 16. He tells them, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And we said that that's really important that we understand that if that's who they are, if that's who Jesus is, and we understand this this huge definition that, that Peter says of Jesus, he is the Christ, the son of the living Christ, then that changes the way that we live. The way that we define Jesus and understand who Jesus is, it really shapes the way we follow. And so he gets it absolutely right. And so um, Jesus tells Peter, you have it right. And then right there in verse 18, it says, Upon this rock I will build my church. And so he uses or employs this word ekklesia, the Greek word for the called out ones, the ones that are now going to be gathered together um, Basically the, the redeemed that come together. That's kind of the idea of this ecclesia, the, the called out ones. And he uses that and, and forms that term ecclesia or church now as as a thing, as an institution, basically his bride. He's gonna only do it one more time in Matthew and eight in chapter eighteen. But because he uses that term, we know that there's some things that we can say about the church that are told to us right there. And there's this amazing promise there in verse 18, where he says, I'm going to build my church. So that means we as a church, those who are disciples, have a promise from God that we can absolutely proclaim the gospel to people with such confidence, because there's a promise from Jesus that when we do that, he's going to build his church. It's not, I hope he builds his church. Maybe he's going to. He's going to build his church, which gives us as a church, confidence to proclaim the gospel to every ends of the nation as a matter of ends of the world as a matter of fact not only does he say he's going to build his church but he also says the enemy the gates of hell shall not prevail against it there the, it's one we, we we know as a church that we can do this and nothing will come against us we might have suffering we might have persecution but in the end the big picture is jesus wins Praise God, hallelujah. And that's that first thing that he tells us about the church. And that really carries us into this second part, which is 21 through 28. So the first thing that we see regarding the church is that we proclaim the gospel confidently. And that moves us into the second part where we see something about the church is is that it calls for us to be sacrificially obedient. We must obey Jesus completely, fully, thoroughly, sacrificially. And that's what this second half of, of... Chapter 16 is really kind of explaining to us based, so he's, real, he's really kind of extending some more of the mission of the church, that you need to go proclaim the gospel confidently. And now the second, which we're going to be looking at today, 21 through 28, is he's calling us for sacrificial obedience. Now, what I want you to see here, um, Mr. ESV has really helped us out because he's given us two little sections and it makes it really nice. And I only have two points. So it's based right there. Usually they get it awesome. They do it for us, right? And they do here. You can see in 21 through 23, that's the first section, Jesus retells his death. That's our first section. And then the second section, 24 through 28 is our second part. And what I want you to know is this. In the first section, Jesus is going to tell his disciples, I got to go die. That's what those first three verses are about. And then the next four verses are, since I got to die, you got to die. That's that's the whole sermon. So if you don't listen to anything else, just write this down. This is the big idea of it. Jesus is saying today in verses 21 through 28, I've got to die, so you have to die. And we're going to talk about what that means. We're going to take it phrase by phrase. What does it mean for Jesus to say he has to die? And what does it mean for us to have to die? Does it mean that we have to die a physical death? But he's going to explain that to us. And we understand... Well, that's a very serious call then. Jesus, when he takes him out to Caesarea Philippi, and he wants to know, who do you say I am? And then he tells him, based on the fact that I've got to die, you've got to die, we can see this serious call that he issues to his 12 disciples, and in turn, continually through his word, that he issues to every single one of us. This is a very serious call that he he calls us all to. He doesn't just call us to um, kind of be forgiven and do whatever we want. He calls us to death. He calls us to spiritual death, counting our death as his. Um, his death is ours. So that's where we are. And so what I want to do here is um, look at the first section and the second section. The first section will be generally pretty fast, and then the, the majority of the talk will be our sermon will be on that second section. So let's look at twenty one through twenty six and we can see that that huge shift, that major uh narrative hinge that, that Matthew does in 1621. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. This is explicit language, no longer kind of clouding it, saying he has to die one day and these kinds of things. He's giving them the explicit gospel. Um, <laughs> reading too much, Chandler. Um, to show his disciples that he is going to go to Jerusalem. Now, for Jer- when he says this Jerusalem, what now We mean by from 1621 for the rest of the book of Matthew. When we see Jerusalem, it is no longer just going to symbolize for us a city. It is going for for Jesus to symbolize a destiny. It is his death. So every time you see Jerusalem the rest of the time, for Jesus, this means death for me. Obedience to the will of the Father. As a matter of fact, D.A. Carson says about this going to Jerusalem, says that this is not unqualified determinism. In other words... It's just determined that Jesus is going, so he has to just go no matter what. It's not that or heroic determination, but for Jesus to to be willing to go to Jerusalem, this is willing submission to his Father's will. So we can just see the obedience that he has for the Father. And so I think all of us, as we're going into verse 21, when it says he must go to Jerusalem. Now, here's the tricky thing. We all live on this side of the cross. We're very familiar with the story of Jerusalem and the cross. And so for all of us, we need to just kind of stop and let our heart take in the magnitude of the determination of Jesus to be willing to obey the Father all the way to to death so that we can be saved. Just imagine that for a second. Jesus is saying, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Our hearts need to just let that soak that in for a second and, and let that... Well up with affections for Christ in our lives. That, that's amazing. Luke says that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, I said this last week, he said his face like flint towards Jerusalem. That's a Jewish idiom, just saying that he was absolutely determined, determined for the sake of the glory of the Father, his name, and for the love of all of his children to go to the cross. And nothing was going to keep him from that. So when we see that, it should for us just cause us to say, Oh, we love the Savior. We love the Savior and his glory and what he did for us, that we, his children, can be saved by his determination to go to Jerusalem. So he says he's going to go to Jerusalem, and then he's going to explicitly tell his disciples why he's going. And he says it right here, that he must, and this is, this is just the gospel. Jesus, in Matthew 16, 21, tells his disciples the gospel, which is that he must suffer Many things from the elders, chief and priests, and scribes. That's the first one, the suffering. And be killed, which is on the cross. And on the third day, be raised again. So this is, this is the gospel. This is exactly what Paul calls the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. Let me just read that to you really fast. In 15.1 it says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Which I preached to you, which you received and which you now stand and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Scary verse, I know. There's a way to believe in and it not be salvific faith. It's a way to believe in vain or there's a way to believe and be saved. But that's a side note. Um, but he says, I will remind you of the gospel. He's also just, just so we can, this is for future sermons. He's reminding Christians of the gospel. So the gospel isn't just for unbelievers to get saved. The gospel is for Christians to hear continually about what Christ has done for us. Christians need to be reminded continually of the death, burial, and resurrection, and the victory that Christ has done for us on the cross. And he says, I will remind you, Christians, of the gospel. For I delivered you as a first report, it's what I also received that. Here it is, the exact same language as Jesus, that Christ died For our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So Jesus lays out the gospel for him in sixteen twenty-one and says, I have to go, suffer, be killed, and on the third day raised. And he lays that out to his disciples, who have been following him for a few years now. They're his master. So verse twenty-two we can kind of keep reading, and it says in twenty-two, and Peter took him to the side. But before we jump forward and, and hear old crazy Peter and his you know his antics Let's, let's kind of put ourselves in between verse 21 and 22. And let's just think for a second. I think we should take that, that, mo- that mindset of what is it that the disciples, his 12 followers, are kind of hearing this now for the first time, just for the, for the, for the explicit words that it is, I am going to go die. People are going to make me suffer I'm going to die, but I'm also going to raise. And you can just hear the disciples hearing this, and you can imagine the lumps in their throat. they're trying to swallow them back down. This is their master whom they love. They've seen do amazing works. I mean, you need to stay alive, more people can get healed, more people can know God. And so they had this mindset, they believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that's what verse 16 is all about. You're the Messiah, the one the Old Testament's been coming, and you're supposed to come and set up the kingdom. The way that we think it's supposed to happen is, when you come, you're supposed to just set up the kingdom and, and do amazing works and reign. And that's coming for the second coming. But for the first coming, they had, they had no concept, they had no categories of understanding that the first coming was death, and then the second coming is that. And so they're thinking, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Their hearts are sad, and Peter just kind of, wait a second, that's not right, it's, we're supposed to have the kingdom now. And so he, he thinks it's his job, you know. and this is the bonehead side of Peter, to, to say, wait, that's not it. Um, Jesus, you got that wrong. So he grabs Jesus in verse 22, and Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. So if you have an ESV study Bible, it points out two pretty, um, um, I guess, obvious things there about Peter taking Jesus to the side. Number one, it shows us the sheer audacity of Peter or a disciple of anyone in the first century to take their master aside. When someone was your master and you're the disciple, you literally followed them around. You didn't say, I'm a follower of him, so I'm gonna go back to my house and live there, and we'll meet big here next week for coffee for an hour, and then, you know, that kind of thing. That's not what you did. Like, in the first century, if you're their follower, you literally dropped everything, and you just followed them everywhere, and I don't know how I'm gonna eat. I don't know how it's gonna happen. That, that was these guys' lives for years. Three years, they're following this guy, Jesus, around, this guy. They're following our Lord and Savior around, my bad, um, and so they're following him around, and we can just imagine the sheer audacity ridiculous, of Peter to take aside his master. This, no one did this in the first century and say, no, no, you can't do that. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Not only that, the more obvious thing is, um, in the correction that Peter gives to Jesus, it's in the form of a rebuke. It's not like, you know, I think he got this wrong. I want to help you out. It's, it's a rebuke, it says in Matthew. It says, and he took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, can we just state the obvious? You're on the wrong side. If you're the one that's trying to rebuke God, it, you, you don't want to be the one that's trying to... Like, you know better than God. It, it's God. You can't say, you got it wrong, God. It's always the reverse. You know, he's telling, you got it wrong again, Fud. You're right, I got it wrong. But like, we don't ever want to be on the side that rebukes God. And it says, far be it from you, Lord. Far be it. And we can, we can see here that it seems that Peter's intent seems to be genuine. As I talked about, he wants Jesus... Um, to set up the kingdom, and his understanding of the Messiah was that he was going to set up that kingdom, and he's like, that's not the way I understand it. I don't understand, I don't want you to die, and so Jesus sees that he doesn't understand the big picture, and that he he doesn't see that the highest form of love that Jesus can give to his disciples and us is to give his life for them and go die now. We're not going to rule now. We will rule after death, after I defeat Satan, sin and death, Um, but Peter just doesn't understand the full plan, and so his intention seems to be genuine to rebuke God. But on the flip side, we can just pick on him a little bit. If what he said was true in verse 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, you would think that if Peter's able to say that, that Jesus really is the Son of God, you would think the Son of God knows what they're doing. <laughs> and so if he tells you, I'm going to go die, you would think, okay, you're the Son of God. You know what you're doing. That doesn't, so you shouldn't necessarily take him to the side and begin the rebuke. But um, he does, he does. And so <clears throat> right there in verse 22, he ends it by, Far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you. This will never happen to you. But then Jesus addresses Peter and he says to him, He turned to him and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. So again, he's gone from getting everything right in 16 to being called Satan. Not a good day when you rebuke God, you're called Satan. And so he calls him Satan. And then Jesus looked at him and says, you are a hindrance. And this hindrance translated, it's stumbling block. So for all you Lecrae fans, Peter goes from rock to stumbling block. Like he just, he he misses out on it big time. I know that was bad. So I I can't, I've been waiting all week for that. And it just, it just died like right there. Didn't even hit, well, first row, they laughed because no one's there, But, but no one else did. So he, uh, he went from rock to stumbling block. Remember in verse 18, you are the rock? Anyway, all right, I'm going to give it up. He said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Now, this is pretty amazing. He looked at, at Peter. He looked at Peter and the amazing, um, amazing Lord looks at Peter and doesn't say, get behind me, Peter. He can see that inside the heart of Peter, the actual attempts and workings of Satan to tempt Peter to try to stop Pete, uh, Jesus from going to the cross and dying. Satan is trying to keep Jesus from fulfilling the plans of the Father. This sounds familiar, right? I know all of you have been tracking with us the whole time through Matthew, and you know exactly where we're going right now. That sounds just like Matthew 4, the temptations. We're all there. And so if you remember back in Matthew 4, those, those three temptations where Jesus tries to tempt uh, Jesus to, to sin, the very last part of the, of, the cha- of the first part of chapter 4 in verse 10 of chapter 4, um, Jesus t- tells him, be gone, Satan. And so in the same way that Jesus deals with Satan in chapter 4, ending the temptations, is almost the exact same language. He deals with Satan's workings in Peter when he looks at him and he says, get behind me, Satan. Or the same thing as 410. Be gone, Satan. You will not stop me from being obedient to the will of the Father and going to the cross and dying for sinners. Beautiful. So in the rebuke, we still get to see something beautiful. The absolute determination, love of Christ for his children, that he would go and die for them. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not. Then it says, <clears throat> setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Man wants to preserve his life. Man wants to keep everything the way it is. Man wants for, for things to be easy and all this kind of stuff. And so that's, that's the thoughts of man. And he said, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's not how it works. I must go and suffer and be killed, but on the third day rise again. These are the thoughts of God. Set your mind on the things of God. And so from that first three verses, one of the things that we can see is um, James Boyce says this. I forgot to say James Boyce said in the first service, but James Boyce says this um, based on this first section. He says, Christianity without a cross is worthless. Christianity without a cross is worthless. Without the cross, there is no salvation because there is no Savior. And this is exactly what Satan was trying to keep from happening. He did not want there to be a Savior. And Jesus says, the thoughts of God are that I will be obedient and I will be the Savior of the world. Get behind me, Satan. You will not keep me from doing that. And so that's the first section. Now, the first thing is that Jesus, the big picture there for number one is Jesus tells his disciples that he must die. Jesus tells his disciples that he must die. Now, and sometimes when you've been in Bible study, you've heard people quote verse 24. It's a very familiar text. You hear 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. You've probably, if you spent any time in church, heard verse 24. But I want to submit to you, this is absolutely, I think, true. I want to submit to you that you will miss all the power and all the punch of verse 24 and following if you don't have verse 21 through 23. If you just kind of jump in on 24 and Jesus says, you gotta die. We're like, okay, I gotta die. But you miss the punch behind it that Jesus is not asking you to do anything that he's not willing to do. You have to have 21 through 23 where he says, I am going to die and I'm not willing to do anything I'm not asking you to do. I'm going to die, therefore, Based on that, you must die. So he predicates everything on that first section, which is, I am willing to do this. I am your Savior and your Lord, and I am going to die, and I'm not asking you to do anything I wouldn't do. So because I'm going to die, you must die also. We're going to talk about what that means, because we're not talking about physical death. So the second thing is, Jesus tells his disciples, since he must die, they must die. Since he must die, they must die. And we're going to explain that. So let's look at 24. Um, Now remember, we're still in chapter 16. And so these are things that Jesus is talking to his disciples. You can see in verse 24 Then Jesus told his disciples. Um, But still, since we're using that whole chapter 16 language of church, we know that this is talking to his disciples, but really information for the church, what he expects and desires and wants of the church to do in regard to their following of him. And we know that's true, not just to the disciples, even though so as in Jesus told his disciples, because right after that, if anyone, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone, so this anyone, it really just means any, anyone. It encompasses all. Anybody that would come after me, then you will be my fo- you will be my disciple. So he's extending this to all people here in this if you're in this church right now, and you are a believer in Christ, this is not a, I'm hoping you're going to do this because I've done it, and I'm really, really hoping you're going to. This is Jesus saying, based on the fact that I died, he's looking at you who are a Christian and saying, you must come and die. You must come and die. And so he says to them in verse 24, if Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would, and then it says this, come after me, come after me. Jesus is going to explain to us what this come after me means and the rest of this verse. So he's asking you as a believer, come be my disciple, come after me, charge wholeheartedly after knowing me, being with me, being a part of my life, receiving forgiveness and living in the forgiveness of Christ, come after me. And he's going to explain to us in the next three phrases what Coming after him means, look at this in 24, it says, if anyone would come after me, let him, and here are these three things, deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So I want to unpack those three one at a time. The first one, coming after Jesus or being a disciple of Jesus, coming after Jesus means first, denying yourself, denying yourself. Boyce, James Boyce, talking about denying yourself says, when we think about what it means to deny oneself, we are at once brought to the radical distinction between a God-oriented life and a life of unrepentant, self-seeking sin. So he says to deny yourself is to orient yourself to either a God-focus or a self-focus. That's it. So denying myself means I am not going to be self-focused, but I'm going to be God-focused. Self-seeking is the opposite of self-denial. I want to deny myself and not be self-seeking, but God-seeking. And the problem with self-seeking is that it's been the essence of sin from the beginning. Genesis 3 was the moment we all became self-seekers. And that's not what he wants. So he's telling us that being a disciple means denying yourself. Denying yourself. Let me just, let me just cut it down to what I think this means for us every day. This is what I think denying yourself means. It means this. Jesus matters more than you do. Jesus matters more than you do. I'm not saying you don't matter. The the cross is pretty good display for us of the affections that Jesus has for us and that we do matter to God. But if we just kind of brush away all the but ifs on all the yeah buts and how come I but denying myself that I can't do that right now, if we just cut it down to brass tacks, it means Jesus means more than you do. Period. And you have to believe that and you have to live that. He means more than I do. Therefore, if he means more than I do, that means his will is what takes front stage. My will is what slips back into the shadows. And his will and his desire and his wants and my money is his and my thoughts are his and my conveniences are gone and everything is his. I'm going to deny myself, that's what it means to be a follower, and put Jesus on the forefront and do what he wants. That's what it means to deny myself. Jesus tells us that we need to deny ourselves. Then he says, How are we supposed to deny ourselves? He says, l- Coming after me or being a disciple of Jesus means not only denying yourself, but after you deny yourself, kind of that negative thing, then it means something else. You also take up your cross. You literally take up your cross. Now, we live in a culture where we have crosses on our jewelry and tattooed on our body. And so I think that we've missed in some ways how the first century hears heard this. And so maybe you're familiar with this, but I still want to, in some ways, try to help us put our minds into that first century. And when Jesus says to them, take up your cross, I want to try to enter in that and and hear with its full magnitude what he's saying. I want to try this with all of our might to hear what Jesus is saying when he says, Take up your cross. Public killings were the way that they carried out justice. There was no put them off in the, in the prison and hide them in this one room and, and execute and carry out justice, Romans 13 style, um, back then. It was this person has sinned against or committed uh, a crime against the country or the nation or the government, etc., hang them right here on the road where even children walk by and we will visually watch this person, this man suffer for days on end. And over three days of being on this cross, that's generally how long they lasted, two or three days, he's gonna eventually die of suffocation. And so public killings were the way that the government carried out justice. And so when Jesus looks at these people who maybe had family members, who maybe had longtime children or cousins or, or, or something that had been crucified before, either wrongly or, or not, because the government was corrupt, even unjustly, put on the cross. When Jesus tells them, take up your cross, there's a sense of, of repulsiveness that enters the pit of their stomach, and they think, cross? You're telling me to Take up a cross to follow you? I find the cross repulsive. I don't, I don't find the cross good. I hate the cross. You're telling me to take up the thing that is the the public display of torment and torture until I die after three days? That's what it means to follow you. Pick up my outward form of torture and pain and follow you. That's what you're telling me. This is what the language that, that it hit those first century hearers. So when it says, being a disciple or coming after Jesus means denying yourself, putting all your desires over to the forefront, but it also means picking up your instrument of torture and putting it on your back and following Jesus daily, willingly putting on a cross. This isn't you know, jewelry and tattoo language for the first centuries. Here's. This is repulsive language. D.A. Carson, I'm sorry, Charles Spurgeon. Now, Jesus said, take up his cross in Matthew 10, 38. And I kind of um, alluded, I I mentioned this this, uh, quote before, you know, however long ago that was, a year ago or whenever it was. Um, Spurgeon says this, though. This is beautiful when it says to take up the cross. It says, we are not to drag the cross after us, but to take it up. Dragged crosses are heavy. Carried crosses grow light. We are to follow after Jesus. And we just... Walking with Christ throughout our life becomes sweeter and sweeter. Dried crosses are heavy, carried crosses are light because the sweetness of communing and knowing Jesus over the life of a sanctified heart, it just becomes beautiful to say, yes, I want to die to myself more and have your life live in me more. That sounds absolutely like what I want. That's why it becomes lighter because you desperately want him to live in you more and not yourself You're willing to take up your cross and put to death yourself. D.A. Carson talks about this in this verse. And he says, death to self or taking up your cross is not so much a prerequisite of discipleship to Jesus. It's not so much like die to self at the very beginning, done that, what's next? He says, death to self is not so much a prerequisite of discipleship to Jesus as it is a continuing characteristic of it. You continually, daily die to yourself. You deny yourself and you take up your cross. You take up your cross. Death to myself, death to my time, death to my money, death to my convenience. All of it is now Christ. Myself, my life, my time, my money, my convenience. Everything is Christ now. Death to me. Matthew 25 maybe gives us a little bit of a, la- uh, a list so this it gets a little bit more tangible because it's still kind of an untangible, what exactly does that mean kind of thing. And we're going to conclude with what that might mean. But Matthew 25 gives us a little bit of a list of what that could mean. It means receiving the stranger. It means clothing the naked. It means giving water to the thirsty. It means giving food to the hungry. It means caring for the sick. It means visiting someone When they're in prison. This is a list that he gives us. If we need a list of what it means to die to yourself. In your own money. In your own time. In your own convenience. In your own whatever. This is Romans 12.1. Living sacrifice language. Where I offer myself up. Literally as the living sacrifice. And now Christ is now working in me. So the cost is very high. The cost is very high. But it is sweet. It is so sweet. So that's the second thing. Being a follower of Christ or coming after him means denying yourself, taking up your cross, and then finally, following Jesus, following him. He says, deny yourself, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So I want to explain what I think Christ is saying about following him, being a disciple of him, or living out a discipled life means to follow Jesus. Because I think sometimes we might get this wrong. Uh, Being a disciple of Jesus is not simply just walking through a door. It's not like, here's discipleship. Open up the door, walk through the door, close the door. Discipled, I'm a disciple of Jesus now. It's not that simple. Discipleship is not a door to walk through and it just is over. Discipleship instead is a path that we must walk down. A path is much more, a greater illustration that we get on the path and then for the rest of our life, we walk the path of discipleship. And that's what it means. Now, don't mishear this. I'm not saying that walking the path earns salvation. I'm not saying that. The door is justification. You walk through the door and now for the rest of my life, my discipled life is a path that I can stop, I can go off or I can continually... We feel this. This is the way it feels to follow Christ. I can stop and just. I've been like here for for months. I'm just standing on the path, or I'm just wandering off in the woods trying to find my golf ball. I don't even know where Jesus is. Like I'm. That's where. That's how I play golf. But like that's how it feels. um, That most. I mean, played forever. But that's that's like how some of us feel. And we can. We have that real experience. But discipleship is a path that we must walk down of sanctification. Continually trusting Christ. Continually following Him. Continually putting to death sin, evangelizing people, being a part of the church, caring for one another, all the one another's being carried out in our life. This is what discipleship is. So when he tells us, if you're gonna come after me, deny yourself, put me on the forefront and put your desires back. That's what it means. Now, take up your cross and follow, and then follow me. Walk the path of the discipled life. That's what he's calling you. He's not, he's not issuing this as a, I sure hope you do it. Based on the fact that he says, I am going to die now. You must come and die. And this is what it looks like. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Why should you do that? Why should you trade your nice, easy, comfortable 75 years, 85 years you get here on earth for that? Why should you trade all those things for this? Jesus gives you three reasons here in the text. Three reasons. Now, these aren't the only three, but he gives three, I mean, it's Jesus, right? Awesome reasons. And you can see that we know that that's what he's doing. You can look at 25, 26, 27. Every single one of those verses starts with a four. This is the Greek word gar. This is the, the word for or because, and that just means... Whenever you see the word for or because in the Bible, it means I'm starting an argument. So I've made, I've made a statement in 24. This is what you should do. Why should you do that? Four, four, four. Here's three reasons supporting that argument in verse 21. It's, it's constantly how the Bible works. But this is what he says. The reason why, and he's going to give us three great reasons, and I want you to see these reasons. Uh, and there are three different reasons of why you should say, absolutely, I'm going to follow Christ. And the reason why I'm going to do it is because, number one, verse Reason one, verse 25, for whoever would lose his, I'm sorry, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Oh, Jesus, that's so confusing, lose and save, what do you say? And he said it twice, and now I'm confused. All right, this is what it means. I guess That's how I am whenever I read these things first. Um, but whoever would save his life will lose it. So he's saying, you can save your life. Don't misunderstand Jesus, you can save your life. For whoever would save his life, I can save it. But I also, if I try to save my life, I will lose it. So I can save my life for these 75 years. And I have that. It's mine. But if I do that and I just think about this short life I have, then for eternity, I'm going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, so if I'm going to count this life as a loss and do what he said, that means counting as a loss means I'm going to deny myself, take up my cross and follow him and count this life as my loss, very much a Philippians 3 kind of thing. Um, Then I lose my life for his sake. Then I can find it. Then I can save it. So the first argument that Jesus tells us is you can lose your life right now. I mean, you can save your life right now, but your saving of your life is only for right now, however long that is. But if you do that, you will not be saved for eternity. So the first argument he makes is, you got two choices. you got this little life or eternity, which is forever. The reason why you should follow me, based on those two, which one's the smarter choice? Eternity living forever, being saved, or just this? That's his first argument. Pick, pick which one you think is the best idea. Obviously, that one's better. That's why you should follow me. So he brings out the argument of being saved forever. Really good argument, <laughs> pretty powerful. Second one is in verse twenty six: For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what will, shall a man give in return for his life? Basically, what he's saying here is: The first one is, you want to live forever, or do you want to eternally be condemned? You can save. That's kind of the eternal, um, temporal life argument. The second one is, just based on your joy. It's just based on your joy and the goodness of God. If you in this life think, what are all the great things about this current life? If I just pursue every single riches that that are here, if I pursue every single pleasure that's possible in this world, and I mean that in a very sinful way, if I can just have everything right here, if he's saying, if you can have everything, all those things, and you accumulate them all around you, is all that for your whole life, is all that worth your soul? Having all these pleasures here, is that worth All of the pleasures that you'll get to have in Christ forever. Which one do you think is better? And you don't need to test it. Because somebody's already done that for us. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon's already told us. He actually did that. And he's more rich than we could ever imagine. And he pursued every single worldly pleasure, every form of riches. And he accumulated them all. And at the end of his life, if you read Ecclesiastes, you don't have to do that. You can just read the book and learn from that guy and not make that mistake. He said, I've had it all and it's all nothing compared to Christ. So, compared to God. So, another way I think Jesus is asking verse 26 is this, and maybe this kind of brings it down for us, is this, because you would say, yeah, I can't even do that, Fud." So, (laughs) whatever. That's, yeah, clearly I want that one. So, maybe I can ask it this way. If someone came to you and said, what's the price tag for you not to follow Jesus? They had the means, and they could offer you a dollar amount, and they could say, You're a follower of Jesus. I'm going to offer you, name the price, and if I give you this amount of money, and they really could do it, tell me what that amount of money would be for you to stop following Jesus. Now, if you're in Christ, I mean, if you love him, you would obviously say, there is no amount of money. You can offer me a billion dollars, and if you say, I can't live for Jesus, then forget it. And that's admirable. That's exactly the way way we all should think. But let me ask this question. This This is the stinging question that's been penetrating my heart all week. Then why do I already seem to be doing it sometimes for nothing? I seem to be pursuing worldly pleasures and riches, and no one's offering me anything for it. Why do we do that? We are not even getting anything from it. This is the question. Which one's more important to you? Your soul or all these things you can accumulate? Let's say you can accumulate them. Big deal. You die. None of them go with you. That's the second reason. The first one is eternity versus this temporal life. The second one is, let's say you get it all. That's not joy. Joy with Christ is forever. Two rock-solid reasons to say, yes, Jesus, I want to come after you. Absolutely. And then he gives us this third one, and I'm just going to say, This is like amazing over the top. Look at it. And it says, here's the third reason why you should follow Jesus. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Now, when we hear that, my mind at least, switches right over to the negative. All the things I've done that are bad, he's going to repay me, repay me, repay me. That's not good news. Okay, I thought that was the case, but all the commentators just went the other direction, the more positive sense. Remember he's 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 offering out reasons why you should follow him and he's saying which one's better which one's more joyful and I think it's just this as much more positive reason what he's saying is if you follow me this is very much a, a Matthew 5:12 kind of language let me read that to you and it says rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets so this repay Language in 10, whatever we are, 16, I don't know, verse, 16,27, 16:27, that repay language is very much the same kind of language as 512, reward. So let's, let's think of it that way, because I think this is actually what he's saying. Remember, this is an argument why you should follow him. And you don't want to scare you and to say, well, that scares me. I don't want to have all repayment. I think he's actually going on the other side, which is, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory, and then he will reward each person according to what he's done. Well... That's a really good reason then to follow after him. Like if I made that deal with you, if I said, you can do a whole bunch of stuff for me and I'm gonna reward you for everything that you've done to me. Do a whole bunch of good stuff. You're gonna say, wait a second, he's a pastor, he not have he's got four kids. He certainly can't reward me very well. That doesn't sound like a good deal. If he's saying I'm gonna reward you, no thanks, Fud, not taking up that deal. But that's not, I mean, it's not some mere man saying I'm going This is Jesus. This is God. He has all the resources available. And if he doesn't have, he can just create more. He can just Create create resources. And he's saying, if you will do, I will repay you and reward you of all the things you've ever done for me. Well, that's a good promise. Now, don't mistake me and think this is just turning into some huge man-centered thing. Well, then that means it's all about me and he's gonna lift me high and say, everybody look at him, reward for him. That's not what we're talking about because we know know that this means rewards for me are are things that that still glorify Christ, therefore his glory, not our own. That's the way we live our lives as believers. But this is a great reason to say, Okay, well, if I'm going to come after him, if I'm going to be a disciple of him, deny myself, take him across and follow him, eternity versus this life, yes. Riches and, 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 and things, that's not joy. Jesus is, and he's going to repay me for everything I've ever done. Therefore, I want to do many things for him because he is a good God who knows how to lavish good gifts on his children. That is a great reason then to follow him. An absolute great reason to follow him. So let's say we're at the point right now where you're saying, okay, Fudd, I'm convinced. I'm convinced. Now, I'm a believer, Fudd, or maybe you're not. We're going to talk to you if you're not yet. I'm a believer. Jesus started and predicated with, uh, his argument with, I'm going to die, and I'm not going to ask you to do anything that I'm not willing to die. Therefore, you've got to die, and you say, that sounds right. Those precious promises are beautiful in 25, 26, 27. I want to do it. I'm absolutely convinced. I'm willing to say, I'm willing to die. I've kind of lived that out. I've done a decent job. I haven't really maybe even understood it. But now, Fudd, I'm absolutely willing to say, I'm going to die. I'm going to deny myself, take up my cross, and I'm going to follow him. That's the kind of life I want to live. What does that mean? Like, what does that actually mean then? How do we count His death is our own. How do we um, take up our cross? What is the language that we can actually do that? Is there any scriptures that can help us understand that better? I think that one of the best verses that we can have that helps us understand this is Galatians 2.20. So this is how we're going to move into our conclusion and understanding what it means for you to take up your cross and die. Be willing to die, not physically physically. I haven't said physically that you, Jesus is going to die physically, you die, die physically. That's not what I mean. I mean spiritually. This is what it means, Galatians 2.20. It says this. I have been crucified with Christ. We're going to stop right there. This is the first part you've got to understand. That means if I'm in Christ, I'm a believer in Christ, I'm a follower of Christ, 2,000 years ago when they took our Savior and they nailed his hands to a cross and his feet and he hung there, when Jesus physically died, I in my mind have to count that death of Jesus as my own, is no, it, I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, when Jesus was on the cross dying, in some ways, I have to say, I died 2,000 years ago. I'm a follower of Jesus. When it was your death? 2,000 years ago. That's when I died. Now, your heresy meters might be just flying off the handle. So let me just correct one thing, okay? I'm not saying that you died for sin. Only Jesus can die for sin. You are not worthy to die for sin. Only Je- he died for the sins of the world. But in some senses, we have to say Jesus' death on the cross was also my death on the cross. I did not die for sin. You don't want Fudd dying for sin at all. That's, just, that's not going to do anything for you. But Jesus died, and when he died, I also died with him. I have been crucified with Christ. And then it says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So if I'm going to say Jesus died, so I have to die the way I live my life is an ongoing understanding and belief that I'm not alive. Jesus is alive in me. It's not me. I died 2,000 years ago. This person that's walking down the path is not me, but Jesus. But here's the thing. We all live in this world where, you know, physically we know that we're alive. Like if you pinch me, you're not pinching Jesus, you're pinching Fudd, and I'm going to feel it. So I'm still walking. So how does that work? What am I supposed to do? How does that really look? And this is it. This is the last sentence, and I think this is this is perfect. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And here it is. And the life I live now, so Paul's not saying, and the life Jesus lives now, he's still absolutely aware that he's still living his own flesh and blood, like bones down the street kind of life. And I live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith. Oh, that's the key word right there. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself me. Why did he... Why should I follow him? Because he loved me and he gave himself for me. So this life I live where I am counting myself dead, putting on my cross, the way that physically lived out is by an ongoing, active trust in Jesus. An ongoing, active belief that his death and resurrection is my death and resurrection. So as I walk down the path, the way I live this out is, I'm going to continually believe in his work on the cross and trust him with my life. Now, here's the thing. This kind of application is very intangible. Like some applications, some weeks I can say, so everybody go do this. And I can just lay out like walk across the street with the lady or tell three people the gospel this week. You know, like, that's, I can actually count that. One, two, three, I can count that. I can do that. But this application is, a, is an intangible, and there's some weeks where that's just the way it works. And this, this week, the, the intangible application is you have to now count your your death as Christ's death and live with active trust in him that his death was for you, and that's, that's how you live. So you're like, okay, that's, <laughs> that's tough. What does that mean? L- let me... Let me conclude it this way, okay? Let me conclude it this way. This is what I mean by actively trusting and believing in Christ and his work on the cross for you. And we're going to return it right back over to verse 24 in Matthew 16. And I'm hoping that I'm going to be able to give you some handles to hold on to to say, believing in, in Christ or living by faith in the son of God looks this way. It means denying yourself. An active belief in the Son of God and not yourself means denying yourself. So, the sin that you keep returning to, that you just love, deny it. The love of money that you have, deny it. The The need for convenience over work for Christ, deny it. The time that you want to have my me time, which keeps expanding, that's... It's Jesus' life. He lives now through you. Deny it. You're supposed to deny yourself. Also, when it it says take up his cross, this is one of those intangibles. I am going to count his death as my own. And I just continually renew my mind by preaching the gospel to me. That reminds myself, I'm dead and Jesus lives in me. And now this life I live is by faith in the Son of God. And then lastly, this... Life I live by faith in the Son of God is I'm going to follow Him. I'm going to think of my fellowship, my discipled life for Jesus, not as a door that I've walked through and I'm done, but as a path, which means I have to actively move myself down this path daily. And this isn't like, so you've got to read your Bible every day. You're not walking down the path. It's I want to commune with my Savior because this life is not mine. I want to commune with my Savior through prayer, through conversation with other believers, through his word. There's there's so many ways that I can can commune. I'm walking down the path, this this followed, this discipled life. I don't like these sins in my life. I want to kill them. By the power of the Spirit, Romans 8, 13. Put them to death. I'm walking down the path. That person who's very dear to me doesn't know Jesus and has a horrible understanding of the gospel. My discipled life is loving them, coming inside them, serving them, feeding them, caring for them, clothing them, whatever that list is in 25, and sharing the gospel with them. This is how I actively live by faith in the Son of God. And so this time of of response now, and you've got 28, and I'm just going to address 28 next week because it's rather confusing and i 'm going to come back and, and that 'll be the first part of the sermon next week verse twenty eight um, but as we go into our conclusion here've we've got we 've got some time we 've got songs, a few songs, and if we 've heard from God like this is god 's word, not fudd 's words this is god 's word, and if he has spoken to you in your heart, then that means Let's think about those things. Let's, let's look at those three things. Deny myself, take up my cross, follow him. And I want you to do this. If you have a piece of paper, don't just kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. But maybe put them down on the piece of paper. Deny myself, these are the things I can do. Take up my cross, these are the things I can do. Follow him, these are the things I can do. Maybe show it to your accountability partner. Show it to your spouse. Let them in on your life and help you with those things. Not just try to meander down the path Walk down it with people. Invite people in to help you. You've got a few songs to think about those things. Ask the Holy Spirit now in these these times to convict you and to comfort you and help you repent and rest in the forgiveness in the gospel of Christ and then stand and worship. If we've heard from God, our response time isn't short. It's extended because God has talked to us. So let's spend some time really reflecting on that. I'm gonna pray and then however the Spirit leads you, Respond. Think, pray, write, stand and worship. Let's pray. Lord, you willingly died. You willingly went to the cross. And therefore, based on that, you're asking us to do essentially the same. To say, I am crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. I want to live by faith in the Son of God. You're asking us to come after you, to be your disciple, to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you. And there, there are these reasons and great other, many great reasons to do this, Lord. So I pray for myself, and I pray for my friends, as we've heard from your word, that we would really think on what that means in our life. Think on what it means to live a life of faith in the Son of God and write those things down and let the Holy Spirit come and move and work. And as we repent and confess and worship and thank you for those things that you've shown us, we would stand and give you the glory. Be with us now in our time of worship and response, God. Holy Spirit, have your way. Have your way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.